Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Simon Luxmore. I'm chief executive for the uh, Society. Now to the Sopwith Lecture. And just to remind you that the Royal Aeronautical Society name lecture was established in 1990 to honour Sir Thomas Sopworth, CBE, Honorary Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. In the years prior to World War I, Sopwith became England's premier aviator and established the first authoritative test pilot school in the world. He also founded England's first major flight school. Between 1912 and 1920, Sopwith's company produced over 16,000 aircraft of 60 types. Tonight, it gave, gives me great pleasure to welcome Jim Albar to deliver this lecture. Jim Albar is Executive Vice President of the Boeing Company and President and Chief Executive Officer of Boeing Commercial Airplanes. He's responsible for all the company's commercial airplane programs and related services. Prior to his current position, Jim was President and Chief Executive Officer of Boeing Integrated Defense Systems, a business unit providing integrated solutions to global defense, space, and intelligence customers. Previously, Jim was President and Chief Executive Officer of Boeing Space and Communications, a unit that merged in July 2002 with the company's Military Aircraft and Missile Systems Unit to create IDS. Jim is a fellow of the AIAA, an elected member of the International Academy of Astronautics and chairman of the Aerospace Industries Association, U.S. Trade Association. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jim tonight to, to, to deliver the Sopwith Lecture. Thank you, Simon, and good evening. You know, I'm an engineer as well, and, and I can't think of a, a greater honor than delivering the Sir Thomas Sopworth Lecture at the Bill Boeing Theater at the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, very honored. In 1910, the Royal Aero Club, with strange British pilots at the time, described a 22-year-old Tommy Sopworth as a man of exceptional charm and polished manners. The club also said that Sopwith possessed a penetrating mind and a coolly, coolly calculated mind and a power of decision and judgment that was rarely ever wrong. Exactly a hundred years ago in the summer of 1911, Sopwith took a, a French airplane to the United States and he competed in time trials, he competed in point-to-point -point races, and he also competed in, in some of the first demonstrations of, of bombing runs with an airplane using oranges as his ammunition. He made front-page news in Philadelphia when he, he circled the city hall and he gave President Taft's brother a 10-minute ride in the airplane. And he also used that occasion to try to make money, and he did make money. And he made money by taking people up for flights and, and sometimes demonstrating crash landings. But he used that money to invest in his company. Now, it's unclear to me, and we haven't been able to figure this out, whether or not uh, Sopwith and Boeing ever met. But one thing we know is that they had a huge impact on our industry. Their companies helped win world wars by producing some of the finest combat, combat aircraft of the time. For Sopwith, it was the Pup, the Camel, and later the Gloucester Gladiator. For Boeing, it was the B-17 and the B-29. 
Both men led their companies into the jet age and left a legacy that we continue to build on. Tonight I'd like to focus on the current state of our industry and also talk about some of the significant challenges that we face. And I do believe that we're at a crossroads, and I'll talk about some of the, you know, the difficult issues we're going to have to face up to in the years to come. You know, I was very fortunate to join the aerospace industry in the early 1970s, and I really do believe that the aerospace uh, industry uh, defined the 20th century. Uh, we built you know, thousands and thousands of Allied airplanes to help win World War II. Uh, we brought the world closer together with the advent of commercial airplanes. We changed the way people communicate with communication satellites. And we changed forever the way that people look at the world around us when we first walked on the moon back in 1969. I also believe that aerospace will define the current century. You know, I often say that, that great companies do great things, and I'm, I'm very privileged to work for what I think is a very great company, Boeing. Uh, it's really in our DNA to be innovative, and that's what we do. You know, we create some of the world's most uh, exciting uh, projects, you know, whether it's helping to put man on the moon or building a commercial airplane or a fighter. You know, those are the kinds of projects that we take on. The last 18 months at Boeing have been you know, very, very exciting. You know, on December 15th of 2009, there were thousands of Boeing employees gathered at the Payne Field you know, outside of Everett. And it was a rainy morning. And I don't care if you're out there in the tarmac or you're watching this event, you know, on television, you know, all Boeing employees felt the same emotion, anticipation, concern, and then, of course, uh, great pride as the 787 took off. And I said at the time that the 20 years from uh, December uh, 9th of uh, December 15th of 2009, in 20 years, I think people will look at that date and say that was a date that changed the way people fly and change the way that airplanes are built. And I think it once again demonstrated the kind of company that Boeing is, a company of vision and the kind of company that is always pushing technology. On February 8th of 2010, we had another you know, very significant anniversary, and that was the first flight of the 747-8 freighter. And then this year, on March 11th, we had the first flight of the 747-8 intercontinental, uh, preserving the, the passenger legacy of what I think is the world's most recognizable airplane, and I think the one airplane that's most closely identified uh, with the Boeing company, the, the Queen of the Skies, the 747. You know, at the same time, dynamic forces continue to shape Boeing and our industry. And over the last 20 years, I think we've seen a lot of change, change driven by information technology, a change driven by globalization, and, of course, change driven by uh, international terrorism. You know, looking forward, I think we're going to see more change. We're going to see changes driven by major shifts in economic and military power as that power shifts to Asia Pacific. We're going to see international competition for resources and talent. We're going to have to do something about global warming, and we're also going to have to do something about the pressing need for energy independence. You know, how we address these issues collectively and as individual companies will shape the impact our industry has on this century. We all know that, that aerospace, aerospace has enorm, enormous implications for the global economy. It touches us in untold ways. It brings us together for commerce, for pleasure, and of course it shrinks the world around us. In the United States, civil aviation is responsible for 12 million jobs. It's about 5.5% of our GDP. You know, already you know, this year we have hired thousands of employees uh, to address the rate increases that we've seen you know, up in the Puget Sound area. 
And of course, here in the United Kingdom, there's some 300,000 employees working in aerospace. And it's one of your largest exporters. And it's good to see that, that after one of the, the worst depressions that we've seen since the 1930s, the commercial airplane market is roaring back. Tomorrow, we're going to announce what our outlook is for the next 20 years. And our forecast is over the next 20 years, there's a market for $4 billion in sales, $4 trillion in sales. Missed a few zeros there. <laughs> and, and we think there are going to be 33,000 new commercial airplanes sold. You know, at Boeing, you know, we have a seven-year backlog. And that's a $263 billion backlog. You know, to me, you know, that's too big. We need to burn some of that off. Without discounting the events that we've seen in North Africa, without discounting the, the higher oil prices we're seeing, you know, I think the future looks very good from a macro standpoint. You know, our data would suggest that commercial airplane travel goes up about one and a half times the world GDP rate. And if you take a conservative view of the world GDP expansion, say 3%, you get to those numbers that I just talked about, $4 trillion in sales. You know, as a result of that market, it's not surprising that new players want a slice of this market. Certainly one thing is true, we're not a duopoly now just with Airbus. We have to compete against the Russians, we have to compete against the Brazilians, we have to compete against the Canadians, and we have to compete against the Chinese. And not all of them will be successful, but some of them will. You know, for example, the Chinese, they spent $5 billion developing a new regional jet. Uh, it didn't get much attention in the market, and uh, you know, basically they, they pushed it aside. You know, they're working on a new airplane, the C919, and it's been said that they're going to spend some $30 billion working on that airplane. And while it may not be that the best airplane, eventually they'll figure out how to get it right. Uh, China has decided that they want to enter this market. They want to invest in it. And I think over time and based on their history, they will be successful. There's several Western companies are working with Comac, who is the Chinese uh, commercial airplane designer and manufacturer. And uh, they will be successful. And they've also opened offices in Los Angeles and also in, uh, in France. And they're going to be recruiting Western engineers who have experience designing airplanes. You think about it, China is one of the three countries that has put a man into space. I, I worked in the space program for quite a while, and, and I know how hard it is to go from zero to 22,000 feet per second in eight and a half minutes. Uh, they were able to do that. Now, there's a big difference between a space vehicle and a, uh, an airplane. But again, they have the talent, they have the resources, and they will get it done. So we're taking them, as well as Bombardier in Canada, and Embraer in Brazil, and Sukhoi in Russia, you know, very, very seriously. And we're working to ensure that, that we continue to have the most capable airplane in every market that we're in. And I just want to make a point about that. You know, going forward, and, and has been our, our hallmark in the past, uh, we've always strived to make sure whatever competitor is out there, that our plane is one that provides more capability and has a, a lower cost of operation than the competitor. You know, at Boeing, you know, we're no longer a Seattle company. In fact, we're, we're no longer a U.S. company. I think we've truly grown to be a global company in the last several years. We have over 650 customers in 145 different countries. You know, 85% of our backlog is outside of the United States. You know, if I catch a salesman in Seattle, you better be trying to sell to Alaska Airlines because that's the only airline that we have in that part of the world. In a Renton factory recently, uh, I was walking through there, and they had uh, airplanes in production from every continent in the world except Antarctica, and one of these days we'll, we'll develop a customer there as well. You know, the last 20 years, 
I think that the map for air traffic has also been changed dramatically. If you go back 20 years, 72% of the passenger traffic was in Europe and North America. Today that number is down to 54%, and we believe 20 years from now it will be less than 40. We see huge growth in Asia, China, and the Middle East. In fact, uh, we think that over a third of our market is going to be in Asia Pacific in the years ahead. You know, globalization has made our world uh, more interconnected, but also I think it's made it you know, more complex than it is today. And Tom Friedman was right, uh, the world is flat. And we learned that when they had the, the earthquake in Japan, an earthquake and tsunami some 4,000 miles away from Puget Sound impacted our factories. We work with 28,000 suppliers in 79 countries, and what happens in another part of the world certainly matters to us. Now, our relationship in the UK uh, goes back more than 70 years, and we work with some 250 uh, UK companies. We're also partners with some six universities here in the United Kingdom, and each of them focuses on a different technology. The Advanced Manufacturing Research Center at Sheffield University is a great example of these relationships. In fact, that university was recently awarded our Boeing Supplier of the Year Award for some of the work that they've done on materials and composites. But our company and our industry face serious challenges, and uh, we need to work to maintain the competitive edge that we have. You know, Boeing, about half of our engineers could retire in the next five years if they chose to. And that's true for other, you know, Western aerospace companies, companies like Northrop, you know, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and others. And we're going to have a very hard time replacing some of that talent because just not enough kids are going into engineering. Now, I was in Russia, I think it was last October, and I took a tour of this cemetery just outside of Red Square. And I was really surprised and very impressed as I walked through the cemetery to find that uh, along with, you know, the heroes of the Soviet Union, you know, people that were, were politicians, people that were in the military, uh, people that were writers, people that were in the arts, along with those people were buried at the grave sites of, of some of the, the greatest engineers in Russian history as well. In fact, I saw the graves of Andrei Tupolev, Sergei Illusion, and Pavel Sukhoi. And of course, you all know that they were very famous in Russian airplane designers. And it made me wonder, you know, when was the last time that we saw a mathematician or a scientist or a technologist on the front page of a magazine in the United States? Uh, and I'm not sure you have too many pictures of scientists, technicians, or engineers here in the UK either. But we need to do a much better job celebrating, inspiring, and uh, in getting kids to pursue uh, careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, my generation and maybe many of you were, were drawn to aerospace because of what John Kennedy wanted to do in 1961, you know, go to the moon and back uh, by the end of the decade. And many of us went into the, these, uh, these engineering organizations or engineering uh, disciplines as a result. We have to find out, we have to figure out, you know, what that clarion call is going to be for the current generations. You know, my view is they're going to have a lot to do. They have to find some solutions to some very daunting problems. And they also have to change aerospace in, in ways that, that we can't even imagine. And I think we'll have an opportunity to do that. You know, I admire the Royal Aeronautical Society for its efforts to inspire the next generation of engineers. We're closely working with them on the Build-A-Plane Challenge in secondary schools. After two years, they have some 3,000 students in this program and they work with teachers to build light aircraft with the goal of flying the airplane 
certifying it, and eventually selling it. And I believe programs like this, hands-on programs where kids have an opportunity uh, to show what they can do and to really touch and feel or what it's going to take to get kids to go into the engineering discipline and the kind of numbers that we're going to need. But we'll need uh, compelling projects to attract and retain the, these, these young kids. In airplanes built by Boeing, Sopwith, and others were the arsenal of democracy that equipped us to win world wars in the Cold War. In the 20th century, I think the defense R&D and procurement blazed a trail for industry and provided innovations that benefited many other sectors, developing things like radar, GPS, and small inertial measurement units. As someone who has worked on the defense and space sides of our industry, I believe that cutting-edge technology, uh, cutting-edge R&D funded by the government is very, very important. And if we don't do that, it's going to limit our ability to innovate, and it will it'll decrease our ability for economic growth. That's a tough message to, to give, and it's a hard sell, certainly, in Washington, D.C., with the budget issues that we have but I'm very concerned about the defense and space industrial base in our country. You know, this summer, NASA is going to park the space shuttle, and there will be thousands and thousands of engineers that will be laid off or will go into to other types of industry. And we'll never get them back. It's taken us 60 years to develop the capabilities that we have. Without clear direction and national investment in this industry, we're going to lose that experience. In my view, uh, the Chinese will walk on the moon before the United States next orbits an American in a U.S.-built space vehicle. I believe that will happen. Now, with the F-35 now in test, believe it or not, there are no active design teams working for the Department, the Department of Defense building new airplanes, probably the first time, uh, again, in the last century. Also, no helicopters being developed either. At the same time, we have many new competitors in the defense market. You know, many saw the J-20, the, the fifth-generation stealth airplane of the Chinese, as a military threat. I saw it as another player in the uh, global defense marketplace. You know, my view is to be a, a viable contractor, to be a contractor like Boeing and like BA Systems, <laughs> like Lockheed Martin, you have to have a continuum of capabilities. You have to know how to do R&D. You have to know how to do detail engineering. You have to know how to transition detail engineering into production. You have to do production and you have to support your customer and you have to have a viable supply chain. With no new starts going on in the Department of Defense, we are losing our capability to do detailed design. We are losing our capability to transition engineering into production. To me, that's the hardest thing you do when you work on these major programs. Uh, you know, I know that this is an issue. We had the problem when we tried to do the 787 program at Boeing. We hadn't done a new development program since the 777. And we had really lost the ability to do development programs and lost the ability to transition detailed design into manufacturing. In the UK, if you were called upon to develop a new plane today, what do you think the result might be? In addition to the challenges that I've already laid out, our industry also needs to address the impact of the environment. You know, airlines today worry about three things, their environmental footprint, uh, fuel efficiency, and also profitability. You know, all three are very closely related to the cost of fuel. Uh, the cost of fuel is some 35 to 40 percent of the operating costs that the airlines have. Commercial airplanes today account for some 2 percent of the, the CO2 uh, that's emitted by mankind. And if air, if air traffic is going to grow, we have to do something to reduce the CO2 emissions. 
and I'm going to talk about that uh, at length in a couple of minutes. But first, let me let me talk about the year at the Boeing Company because it's been pretty exciting, and it's really shaping up, I think, to be an extraordinary one. You know, we've won some 180 orders uh, this year, and we'll be announcing some more at the air show uh, next week. We're on track to deliver two revolutionary new airplanes, the 787 and also the 747-8 freighter. Uh, the flight test programs on those on those airplanes are about 95-96% complete, and in a few months we'll be delivering the first 787 Dreamliner to ANA, and that's going to be a, a very exciting time for us with all the work and all the time that we put into that airplane. That airplane, of course, is going to have Rolls-Royce engines developed up at Derby, and, and we have many other British partners that have helped us design and build that airplane. You know, I see that the 787 Dreamliner is truly the, the first new airplane of the 21st century. I know my friends in Toulouse would probably say that it was the A380. Uh, in my mind, the A380 was the, the last airplane of the 20th century. It used 20th century technology. What's different about the 787 is it is using 21st century technology. It's an all-electric airplane. It's an all-composite airplane. It's going to be much different than anything you've flown in uh, in the past. You know, to meet the customer demand and, and address the backlog that we have at Boeing, uh, some 3,400 airplanes, as I mentioned before, uh, we've announced rate increases on every program that we have. In fact, if you project out four years from now, we'll be uh, delivering some 40% more airplanes than we're delivering today. And, and just a couple of hours ago, we announced a rate increase on the 737 from uh, 31 and a half airplanes a month up to 42. And, and we're doing that because we're sold out through 2015 and parts of 2016, and we want to burn that backlog down so we can sell more airplanes. We're also uh, building an entire new factory at Boeing uh, for the Dreamliner. We're building a factory in Charleston. If somebody wants to ask me about the uh, National Labor Relations Board at the Q&A time, I'd be happy to, to give you my view on that. Uh, we're also uh, expanding about 75,000 feet in Renton, where we build the 737. And, of course, we're working with our suppliers, many of them here, on what it takes to support those rate increases. You know, as I mentioned earlier, commercial aviation does have a significant impact on the environment. And as a, as a company, we're taking aggressive action to try to address this, to help improve uh, fuel efficiency and profitability. You know, it's good for the customers. It's, it's good for the, uh, the passengers. It's good for the environment. And, and it's the right thing for us to do, to care about the environment of the world that we live in. You know, our industry has, has set a goal for being carbon neutral by 2020 and also to reduce our CO2 emissions in absolute terms uh, by, by 2050. And meeting those goals will take technology and will also take new products. You know, believe it or not, some 75% of the research and development that we do uh, has an impact on the environmental footprint of our airplanes, whether that's fuel efficiency, CO2, or noise. And over the last 50 years, we have reduced the, the CO2 emissions of our airplanes by 70%. I believe that we can keep it neutral in absolute terms by 2050. Now, how are you going to do that? I think there are really five things that you have to work on. You know, one, lightweight materials in the airplanes. You read that as composites. Uh, you have to continue to work on, uh, on the aerodynamics of the airplane. And we have, we think, some pretty exciting uh, aerodynamic technology that we can apply to the next airplane that we build. You have to look at, uh, at more fuel-efficient engines, and each of the, the three major engine companies we have working for us are doing just that. You also have to have a much more efficient air traffic management system than we have today. 
And then I think there's also a great promise in biofuels. Now, we've made a lot of progress just in the last four or five years. The 747-8 is 16% more efficient than the 747-400. And if one looks at the, the 787-8, it's going to be some 20% more efficient than the, uh, the 767 that it replaced. And the 737 of today and the 777 of today are much more efficient than the original 737s and, and 777s that were delivered years ago. You know, my view is that uh, we also have to do something more for the 737, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, in, in a few minutes. Let me talk about, about air traffic management, if I could. I mean, I think that, that air traffic management you know, provides a real opportunity uh, for making airplanes more efficient. You know, I talked about the things that we need to work on. Uh, I've talked about, you know, how we're trying to lightweight the airplanes, how we're trying to get more fuel efficient. But... We're also working with agencies in the U.S. and Europe on improving the air traffic management system. You know, in my lifetime, I think there have been really two giant steps in transportation in the United States. The first was the, the interstate highway uh, programs of the 1950s, and then there was the GPS program uh, in the 1970s. In my view, is the next you know, big transportation project that the U.S. needs to embark on is a next-generation ATM system. And I think it will provide the interstate highway system of the sky. And it will allow airplanes to fly more precise routes. It will also have, allow them to have much more efficient ascents and descents. Now you think about you know, what Boeing is doing and what Airbus is doing. We're investing you know, billions of dollars to make the 787 and the A350 more efficient. If you were to invest in a next-generation space-based air traffic management system, you could make every airplane flying at least 10% more efficient. And you could pay for that in just a number of years if you decided you wanted to do that. I mean, our view is anywhere from 10 to 20% is what the improvement will be and a huge impact on the environment as well. Let me talk about one of the most exciting frontiers for our industry, and that's sustainable aviation biofuels. Uh, you know, this is jet fuel you know, made from plants that don't compete with food crops for land or water. And the, the energy densities of these biofuels is some 50 to 80 percent, uh, is 50 to 80 percent less carbon, but also higher uh, energy density. And we're working with, with many airlines as well as several countries uh, on developing capabilities to do that. Uh, just this week, uh, a leading international standard group gave approval for commercial airlines to blend aviation fuel with 50 percent uh, biofuel. And this is a huge step, and it's one that I think uh, will lead to us you know, using more and more biofuels in the years to come. Now, let me just say that we're going to fly an airplane to Paris next week. Uh, we're going to fly, actually, we're going to have four or five airplanes there. I think we're going to have a, a 747 freighter, a 747 uh, passenger airplane. We're going to have a 787, a 37, and a 777. But the 747-8 freighter that's going over there is going to burn 15% biofuel. And it's going to be the, the first transatlantic flight uh, using biofuels. And we'll be using biofuels in all four engines. You know, fuel efficiency was a big factor in our decision to do the 787 program. And it's an example of, of the kind of company we are. You know, one of our mottos is, you know, we build uh, tomorrow's airplanes while the competition builds today's airplanes. And that's what Joe Sutter and his band of Incredibles did 50 years ago when they developed the 747. And I think many of you probably know Joe. I know he's been in this theater many, many times. 
and, and Joe just celebrated his 90th birthday just a few weeks ago. And uh, we took that, uh, that occasion to name a building at Boeing after Joe. And it's the first time we've ever named a uh, Boeing building you know, after an employee. And, and after we did that, somebody came up to me and they said, well, you know, you really shouldn't start to name buildings after employees. You'll, you'll run out of buildings. And, you know, my, you know, my response was, well, you know, if you design an airplane and you turn 90 years old and you get an award from the President of the United States, we'll name a building after you. Now, with that criteria, I'm not worried about running out of buildings anytime soon. Now, you know, speaking of Joe and the 747, that first airplane flew, or first airplane was delivered in 1969. And there were two very historic uh, you know, aerospace events that occurred that year. The first was the moon landing, and the second was the, uh, the delivery of the first 747. And I think it's very ironic this year that in the United States we're going to park the space shuttle and it will end the U.S. capability to put men into space on their own spacecraft. But we're going to deliver the first 747-8 freighter, you know, keeping that airplane flying for another three or four decades. You know, going forward, we have to be the kind of company uh, that, that Joe led back in the 60s and the 70s. We have to continue to bring that vision to life as we go forward. Now, we're working on derivatives of the 787. We're also looking at what we need to do to the 777 to make sure that it continues to be the most capable airplane in this market. And we also have to make some decisions on the 737. Now, the 737 is a great airplane. I'm sure everybody here has flown on it. You know, we've delivered some 6,000 of these airplanes so far. And as I mentioned, we're sold out for the next four or five years. But we, but we have to look ahead and decide you know, what we're going to do uh, with the, the, the narrow-body airplane and the narrow-body market. And that we have a very, very deliberate process for making the decision on what we're going to do for that airplane. Now, we, we could launch uh, a new small airplane in mid-decade and have it in the service by 2019. We could re-engine the 737, which is, is technically viable and a real option. In fact, we've got a, we've got a design really uh, uh, you know, parked in, in one of our offices back in Everett that will do just that. But then we're going to do one of those two things. Uh, we're either going to re-engine or we're going to build a new small airplane. And I'm not going to announce that we're going to do either one of those tonight, and I'm not going to announce uh, in Paris what we're going to do. But we're talking to customers. Uh, we're looking at the market. Uh, we're not reacting to the competition. I mean, our view is that if Airbus does re-engine the 320, it will just make that airplane as good as the 737 that we're building today. We're also taking a hard look at the technology that's going to be available now and in the future. And our, uh, you know, our competition has said that there won't be the technology until 2030 or 2035, you know, for a new small airplane. And, you know, we believe that their technology won't be ready. But let me just say that, that we have the technology to do a new small airplane today. And, uh, you know, we know how to get a 20% efficiency out of an airplane. We just did it. We just did it with a 787. We know we can do it with a small airplane. Now, a re-engine would be less risky, and it would allow the 737 to maintain its capability advantage over the A320neo. The question we're working on is whether that's good enough in, a lot of the, in light of the rising fuel costs and the emerging environmental regulations that are out there. In other words, do you want to continue to evolve a 20th century airplane, or uh, do we want to build a new one for the next 50 years? And that's really you know, what we're working on. 
know, Thomas Sopwith recognized early on that, it, that the aviation business was highly competitive. Uh, if you didn't build a better airplane, somebody else would. And no matter what industry you're in, it really is about innovation and continuing to develop products that the market wants. That is really the key to survival. You know, today, you know, we believe that, that we are a company that continues to innovate. And to me, there, there are really five things that are required to foster foster innovation in a company. The first is you have to have a passion to be the best. And you have to compete against the best in the world. And your goal has to be that you're not going to be a commodity play. You're going to have the best capability. I think the second thing is you have to be a company that is willing to make the investment in research and, and development of technology. And you have to invest in your people as well. You know, another thing that's extremely important, I think, is to have a culture of openness where people feel comfortable uh, coming forward with their ideas and, uh, and schemes on, on how they might do things differently and better. And, you know, we all have worked with a crazy engineer, right? Maybe there are a few of them in this room. You know, the, the engineer that, that comes to you with 99 you know, crazy ideas, but he has the one that will set you apart from the competition. We've got to make sure that we really encourage those crazy engineers and crazy ideas because you're going to find one once in a while that will change your company and change it forever. I think the other thing that you have to have is a skilled, adaptable workforce and a leadership culture that encourages innovation as a competitive advantage. And you also have to have an awareness that the best ideas aren't necessarily within your company. The best ideas are not necessarily within your country. You have to take the best ideas from around the world. You know, Boeing is not a low-cost manufacturer. Uh, we never will be. And we have to d differentiate ourselves in the marketplace, and, and we will do that. And we're going to do that through innovation, and we're going to do that as we provide values to the customers. You know, there have been some, some well-publicized challenges uh, on the 787 program. I think we went into that program with some of the technologies not as mature as they should have been. Uh, we asked some of our partners to do tasks that they'd never done before, and we didn't provide the kind of oversight that they needed. And, and we've learned from those mistakes. But still, you know, our experience with the 787 can't drive us to be more conservative. We're an engineering company, and innovation is what we do. You know, in my view, the times that, that the Boeing companies got into trouble, it was when, you know, people other than engineers were driving many of the decisions. Bad decisions were made, not necessarily bad engineering. You know, some companies, you know, build an airplane, and then they try to sell it. And we sell an airplane, and then we try to build it. And uh, there's a big difference in that. And uh, it puts a lot of pressure on our engineers to build that airplane that the customers want. But it does deliver the best and most capable airplane and the airplane that, that we can sell in the marketplace. You know, just as Tom Sopwith and Bill Boeing did a century ago, we want to define the future of flight. Sopwith said that he and his partners designed new airplanes before the Great War by roughing out the scheme on the back of an envelope and then building it in six weeks. Now today, it takes a little longer than six weeks, as I think you all know. But we're still captivated by the magic of flight, and we're still driven by the desire to be the best, and we're still compelled to take risks and explore new frontiers. A hundred years ago, when Sopwith came to America to compete in races around the country, some people complained that flying contests were too risky. Sopwith's sister, May, wrote a Chicago newspaper to defend what she called the world's greatest aviators and the world's greatest machines. 
the risks were acceptable, she wrote, for a chance to see what she called the greatest wonder of the age. At the Royal Aeronautical Society, I'm always reminded we are the stewards of a proud and vital legacy. And I believe now, as I always have, that aerospace is the greatest wonder of our age. Thank you very much, and I'll be glad to take any questions you have. Thank you, Jim, very much indeed. We've got some uh, opportunity now for some questions and answers. There should be some roving mics, I hope. Well, mine's Malcolm Ginsburg, AirBT. It's a weekly aviation um, uh, online publication. I thought I might just throw in a f one which, for our British audience here, uh, 1969, I think was the year you mentioned, it's also the year of Concord. So we've all gone... Faster than sound. US centric still. <laughs> We've all gone faster than sound and thank you for the uh, future of the 737. Can you, sir, tell us what the future of supersonic flight is? Hmm. Well, you know, I guess a few comments on that is, as you know, the Boeing company, uh, talked about a, a program called the Sonic Cruiser a number of years ago. And what we found was that the people would not pay uh, for speed. And I think until we get some breakthroughs in, in propulsion technology, uh, we're going to have an issue. But but will we fly supersonic commercially? You know, of course we will. It's just a question of when. And and that's one of the reasons we have to continue to invest in research and development. Next question, please. Yes, sir. Michael Gubisch from Flight International. Um, in your forecast that you're going to publish tomorrow, I think you... The um, forecast for large aircraft has actually gone up over you, the forecast you have done last year. Uh, is that to do with uh, making your... Um, can you explain why, why the forecast has gone up? Well, I think it's really the issue of globalization, you know, more more transport between between continents. Uh, if one looks at, at the last forecast that we had, I believe that it was for 21,000, uh, you know, single-aisle airplanes, uh, over 7,000 uh, twin owls, and then about 1,000 you know, jumbos, A380 and 747s. And this year what you're going to see is, is more demand for the wide-body aircraft, again, I think driven by globalization and, and the large distances that people have to travel. I think the other thing I'd comment on is you know, the demand for those airplanes. It's unclear whether or not you know, the capacity exists to build all those airplanes, and that's one of the the things that we're going to have to work on, and certainly one of the things I know Airbus will have to address as well. Hi, John Bowen from Webber Shanwick. Uh, I'm just interested, uh, you mentioned supply chains earlier. Uh, can you expand upon the importance of supply chains and how Boeing intends to manage relationships to ensure more efficient production? Yeah. yeah I think on the, the 787 program, we, uh, we probably outsourced more than we should have. Uh, we lost control of, of elements of the supply chain. You know, our going in position was that we outsourced, you know, all of the, the fuel slosh, for instance. We'd never done that before. Uh, you know, subsequently we've, we've gone and we've, we've purchased the global aeronautica facility down in, down in Charleston and also the, the Vought facility. Uh, we now have control over two of the elements, uh, that go into the fuel slosh. Uh, we're also planning on bringing back the, the horizontal stabilizer on the, uh, on the 787-9. You know, my view is that, you know, we have to know more about the airplane than any of our suppliers do. We have to build, you know, virtually 
some of every element that goes into the airplane. I'm not saying that we need to build everything, but we need to build some of everything so we have the, the detailed knowledge that we need to have to do production. Uh, to go in and help our, our partners if they get into trouble, and then if they get into serious trouble, you know, have the ability to bring that work back inside. So we're going to redraw the lines, you know, relative to, you know, what we do inside and what we do outside. Uh, I think the, the next airplane we do, if we do it, you know, the model will be more like the 777 as opposed to the 787. Jaguar, it's uh, Laurie Price, McDonald. Thank you for your remarks. If I may, how are we going to uh, deliver improvements in ATM and indeed get places for your aircraft to land, particularly in the Western world, with the antipathy to new runway development? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I, I got all that question, but just let me talk about ATM. I think that you have to have harmonization of ATM, you know, around the world. There's no question about that. You know, what we're doing with, uh, with, with Cessar here, you know, what we're doing with the next generation ATM in the United States, we've got to harmonize that. Uh, you know, I go up on Capitol Hill in Washington and I talk about it, and, and they think of ATM as, as safety, and it is safe. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons you do it, obviously. But I think what they miss is the fact that we can have a major savings uh, in fuel prices if we go with the next gen. And we can also, I think, uh, increase the, the density of flight in the skies. And while that's not as serious a problem in the United States as it is here in Europe, it soon will be. So I think for the industry, if we're interested in the environment, if we're interested in energy independence, you know, ATM is the right answer. There's no one thing that will have the impact on, uh, on energy uh, consumption than ATM. That's, that's the number one priority that we have, and we're going to continue to push it. And then certainly in some of the emerging countries, you know, we need to go and, and work with them as well. In fact, we are. Sir Peter. Sir Peter Norris, uh, past president. Jim, wonderful lecture. Thank you very much indeed. One particular area of the future that you haven't touched on is the whole question of um, unmanned air vehicles. Could you give your view on uh, the future as far as unmanned air vehicles in the uh, cargo and passenger yeah. transportation thing, recognizing the fact that the majority of aircraft accidents are caused by pilots. Well, I remember. And I speak as one. I remember when I was, was growing up, and this is going to show my age, but I remember when elevators had operators. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the only elevator operator I've seen in the last 20 years is at Claridge's, if I happen to stay at that hotel. Uh, I haven't seen one anyplace else. You know, railroad engineers, if you go to, to Disney World, you know, down in, uh, in Florida, you'll be on, on trains that have no, no engineers. Uh, you know, we're op we operate unmanned aero vehicles today. Uh, we, have air we have pilots on the ground that are actually, you know, flying those aircraft. So I think the technology is there. But I think we've got to, you know, one, we have to work on the reliability. Uh, we have to work on the education. And I think it's going to be a few years before people are willing to get on an airplane, you know, without a pilot. You know, that said, could you have one pilot on the airplane rather than two? And could you have a, a backup pilot, you know, on the ground uh, in the event that, that something happened to the pilot uh, in the airplane? You know, certainly the, 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 the large transport companies are, are very interested in having airplanes without pilots. And probably where it makes sense to start would be, you know, over the Atlantic and over the Pacific. Uh, I think that people you know, would feel a little more comfortable with that. But I, I think it's going to come. It's just a question of when. It's all about reliability. It's all about safety. And it's all about uh, 
in getting people to feel comfortable with change. And it certainly will be a, a marked change if we were able to do that. The technology is here and certainly will improve over time. Don't write that, that I'm, we're doing an unmanned airplane because we're not for commercial use. <laughs> Excuse me, Mark O'Dell from the uh, Financial Times. If I could just take you back to the present. Um, your uh, comments about the 737 replacement. Uh, you, uh, t the, the, the comments you made about the A380 being the last century's aircraft and the 787 being the first one yeah. of this century. And then your comments about having the technology to make an all new 737 replacement today and rubbishing Airbus's claims about uh, having to wait till 2030. Yeah. Uh, I know you won't give us a straight yes or no here or indeed in Paris next week, but if you were a betting man, could you give us some odds on whether you'll go for it all new or re-engineering? <laughs> no. Uh, no. We're looking at both of them very, very hard, and it's a tough trade to do. Uh, you know, again, you know, what do our customers really need for the next 50 years, you know, assuming that, that oil prices continue to go up? Uh, do they want an involved airplane or do they want a new airplane? At the same time, doing a new airplane has a lot of risk associated with it as well. So we're taking this one, again, in a, in a very uh, measured and, uh, and direct fashion, and we'll make the right decision you know, for the customer. And they're going to be the ones that, that drive us to the answer. Yes, sir. Mr. Alba, uh, Robert Wall with Aviation Week. Uh, just a question, again, on the uh, NSA yeah. uh, you talked about you have the technology to do the aircraft, but given the strain and the drain the 787 and the 7478 have represented on your engineering resource and your financial resource, do you have the money and do you have the engineers, spare engineers, to do NSA? Well, you know, the great thing about having just done the 747 program and the 787 program is we've just trained, uh, you know, thousands of engineers in how to do development programs. And they are coming off the 747 and the 787 program today. And what I want to do is not get in a situation like we got in between the 777 and the 787 where we forgot how to do development programs. Now is the time for us to commit to a, a new program, whether that's a re-engine or a new small airplane. We do have the resources and they're trained. And I think the next time we, we do a major development or do a, a major derivative program, We'll do it in a better fashion than maybe we did on the 4787 because of the, the training that they got on the two prior programs I mentioned. In terms of financial resources, you, know, you, can, you can look at our balance sheet. Uh, we, we're doing fine. Yes, sir. Hal Rosenstein, Boeing. Uh, what do you really think about the national labor, labor relationship? Uh, <laughs> for, uh, uh, well, I guess we were surprised. Uh, you know, we think it's contrary to, to the law. And we also think that it's contrary uh, to precedent. And, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on, on building airplanes right now. I'll let the attorneys, you know, take care of this issue. But uh, it's an issue that I don't want hanging over, you know, the, our heads as we go into to labor negotiations with our union in 2012. I mean, I'd like to get this, this issue behind us so we can move out and, and do what I think both the union and Boeing wants to do, and that's to build airplanes. I mean, we have a lot of airplanes that that we have in backlog that we want to deliver. And uh, an issue like this doesn't help. I'll take two more questions. Tim. Uh, thanks. Uh, Tim Robinson, Aerospace International. Uh, I come with the building. Um, you, you can't say, say whether you would be going for a re-engined uh, 737 or a small new aeroplane. Can you give us a sense of 
how much time you've got to decide. What's the cut-off date? How many months, years, <laughs> weeks have you got to sort of, to sort of choose? You know, we've, we've thrown dates out there before, and we've uh, we haven't met them. And you know, we don't want to be driven by by a date. But I will say this: you know, our customers you know, want to know precisely what we're going to do. And, and right now, what we can tell them is, you know, we can do a re-engine. Uh, we know how to do that. We've got the design on the shelf. And if we do that, we'll maintain the 8% uh, efficiency lead that we have on the A320neo. And uh, we could do that. And the other approach would be to do the new small airplane and, and have a significantly greater uh, improvement in efficiency. Again, that would take longer. Uh, we would deliver the new small airplane towards the end of this decade. We could, uh, we could uh, deliver the re-engined airplane sometime towards the end. Or towards the middle of this decade, yes, but I have I have customers on the phone uh, often asking me what we're going to do, and it's one of those two things. They understand that. Sivanos Corbati, Augusta Westland. Everybody knows uh, the issue that you had uh, Boeing had on the seven four seven eight seven in terms of delay mm -hmm. and uh, the development. What uh, were the uh, lessons learned about that uh, project? Yeah. You know, I, I touched on those a little bit in the talk. I think you know, some of the technologies that we we put in the airplane were immature. They had not been developed to the point that, that they probably should have been. I think the other thing is we outsourced a lot of things to people that had never done this type of work before, and then we didn't provide the kind of oversight uh, that was necessary. You know, that said, uh, I, I really believe that when we deliver this airplane, Uh, it's going to satisfy the needs of our customer, and I think they will forgive us for being late. They would certainly not forgive us if we didn't deliver the airplane that we promised, and this is going to be the airplane that we promised. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, I'd like to now formally invite uh, Jenny Body to propose the vote of thanks. Well, Jim, you, you said at the very beginning that uh, it was an honor for you to be here. I think it's actually been an honor for us to hear what you've, you've had to say. Um, You've, you've talked about the crossroads, the challenges, and so much of it being a, a, a global issue. Um, and you've also talked about the emotion of being part of the aviation business. And I think that's probably something that we, we all understand and uh, uh, recognize. It really is, everything looks very gloomy at the moment. And I think it's, it's great to hear you talking about the vibrant market, because it is vibrant and... Uh, um, I think it's, it's fantastic to see how commercial aerospace has, has sort of skidded across the dip in a way. And uh, it's, gr it's great to hear you talking about that. Um, I'm really delighted to hear you talk about training and developing young engineers. Um, I've just been a, a very tiny bit involved with your Build-A-Plane activity. Fantastic, fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's great, really exciting to see what we're doing in Bristol. And I can't wait to see that aeroplane starting to come, come together. Um, also great to hear about the environment, and I think that's uh, increasingly a, a subject that we have to respond to, and, uh, and, and, and it's one of the areas where we probably need to get the emotion out and talk about fact and uh, whatever. Um, great to hear that you're at the crossroads with your product strategy, and uh, um, I can only wish you luck in Paris. Um, I'm sure it's going to be interesting an interesting yeah. time, and uh, we'll obviously be looking forward to whatever you announce. So uh, what I would like to say is thank you very much.